This is Pastor Chris, lead pastor here at Bethel, and this past Sunday we started a new series. Um, We're going to be working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, we actually had some technical difficulties back at the sound booth, and so it didn't get recorded. Um, It's happened a few times in the past, and we've just kind of let it go, but um, given the fact that this was the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount series, and at the encouragement of a few folks, I am going to just try to uh, record like a podcast episode here that um, serves as the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. So uh, here we go. We're obviously kind of parachuting into chapter five of the gospel according to Matthew. Um, We won't spend much time summarizing the first four chapters uh, leading up to that point. But I would encourage you to take a look at uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, where Jesus says, or where the text says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So that's how Jesus' public ministry begins, at least the way that Matthew records it. Um, So after his baptism at the end of chapter 3, and then his temptation by Satan in the wilderness, these are the first of Jesus' words. Um, of his public ministry that Matthew records. So so think about it. He starts out with repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What are your connotations with repentance, with hearing it that way? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, Do you think of that guy on the street corner with the sandwich board strapped over his shoulders and maybe a megaphone in his hand? Um, Do you think of like fire and brimstone preacher, a Bible thumper ready to whack you upside the head with a four-pound Bible. Um, So those connotations, though they might be understandable given some things that you've seen and heard, uh, will really lead us astray if we import them into what Jesus is saying here. Um, Instead, I'd encourage you to think about it this way. Repentance is what turns on the flow of grace into a person's life. So in James... Uh, 4 and 1 Peter 5, um, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So God, when we humbly recognize that we are wrong, that something's wrong in our lives, that we're heading the wrong direction, and we turn, it opens up the flow of grace into our lives because God loves to give grace to the humble. So if you were making a wrong turn and you started heading down I-95 the wrong direction, you see those red signs that say wrong way. Um, They're not oppressive. (laughs) They're not trying to steal your fun. They're actually aimed at saving your life. They're aimed at your good, your well-being. And so that's really what we need to hear when we hear Jesus calling us to repent. So... uh, But we do need to hear this, and and make no mistake, as we head into the Sermon on the Mount, we are going to need to change. Uh, We're going to need to turn around and strike out on a new path in a lot of different areas of life if we're going to follow Jesus and trust him. So, uh, But we need to be clear about the fact that it's not all loss and burden. It is intended for our good that we might flourish, uh, that we might live the blessed life, the life filled with his grace. So that's the path that Jesus wants to lead us on. It's the path of life. It's the path to life. Um, So what we're going to do here is mainly look at some introductory matters that are really important to understanding 
uh, the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, and specifically the Beatitudes. And then we're going to look at the first of the nine Beatitudes, Blessed are the poor in spirit, um, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the first point um, is that Jesus comes on the scene here, and he is like a new and better Moses. Um, so verses 1 and 2 here. So starting with verse 1. Uh, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So uh, mountains or high places in the ancient world were viewed as places of divine revelation. It's where you went to meet with the gods. Oftentimes altars were built there. And so um, that's one of the connotations here as well, because in the Old Testament, mountains were associated with significant encounters with God. Um, if you think of Mount Ararat with Noah after the flood and he offers the sacrifice, or Mount Moriah with Abraham and God uh, provides the ram instead of his son Isaac, or Mount Carmel with Elijah, the showdown, um, the prophets of Baal, and God reveals his glory there and burns up the sacrifice. And then certainly Mount Sinai is central in the Old Testament with Moses. So the mountain is a place of divine revelation where people encounter God and hear from him. And uh, so Jesus, uh, there's all these connotations here of him being a new and better Moses. If you look back prior to chapter 5, um, there have already been some overtones of Moses and the Exodus. So just to name a few, you have the slaughter of children um, was decreed at the time of Jesus' birth, just like with Moses, and both Moses, baby Moses, and Jesus were spared. Um, they both fled from the land in response to kingly threat, and they both returned. They both fasted 40 days and nights. Um, and then also you have connotations, not just of, of um, Moses, but also the Exodus. And so just as Israel was tested in the wilderness for 40 years, Jesus was tested in the wilderness for 40 days. Um, after his baptism, um, Spirit leads him out into the wilderness and Satan tempts him there for 40 days. So Israel sadly failed the test. And even Moses sinned and wasn't allowed into the promised land. Um, Jesus, as the true Israel, um, the true Son of God, passed the test. Um, and then if you look forward into the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to hear Jesus say, you have heard that it was said, for instance, don't murder, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, um, you know, if you have anger in your heart toward your brother, or if you look at a woman in your heart to lust, um, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. So Jesus is this new and better Moses revealing the true intent of the law. And so he is establishing the law of Christ, you could say, the law of the kingdom of heaven. So he's the new and better Moses um, in another sense as well. Moses was not just the lawgiver um, for Israel. He was also the human agent, the redeemer and deliverer. So Jesus is not just going to... Um, teach and give a new law, he's also going to be the ultimate redeemer and deliverer, not just for Israel, but for 
all people, Jews and Gentiles alike, people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So Jesus is the new and better Moses, and he's come to reveal the will and heart of God and to form a new covenant people, redeemed not by the blood of a a spotless lamb, but by his precious blood on the cross. And um, ultimately, the law is not going to just be written on tablets of stone or even just taught up on a, on, a, on a mountaintop, but written on the hearts of his people because he's going to change us from the inside out by the grace of the gospel of the kingdom. So that's the first point. Um, Jesus is a new and better Moses. The second point um, is that we have to consider the audience and application. So as we head into this sermon, um, we need to know who Jesus is talking to. Um, who's he addressing? Because that has implications for how we understand and apply it. So after the baptism of Jesus and the temptation in the wilderness, into chapter 3, beginning in chapter 4, um, he then uh, starts his earthly ministry, like we noted before in 417, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, the king has come, and so he is at hand. He is bringing his kingdom He begins to call disciples in verses 18 to 22 of chapter 4. And then he starts teaching and healing in verses 23 to 25. So you can imagine uh, with all this healing and this teaching, his fame is spreading and crowds are beginning to follow him, which is um, what's going on, you know, right before the Sermon on the Mount starts. So his fame spread, verse 24 of chapter 4. They bring all these sick folks and um, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics. He heals them, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And then we have chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he taught them. Um, So, actually it says he opened his mouth and taught them, so (laughs) that doesn't mean... Um, you know, so he wasn't a ventriloquist. It, it's kind of a, um, a Jewish, kind of a Semitic way of, of having connotations of the solemnity, the weightiness of his teaching. Like this is a um, significant moment. So he opened his mouth and taught them. So <laughs> the question is, is this a sermon only for the disciples or is it a sermon for the crowds? I mean, obviously they were interested, um, but they hadn't gone in with Jesus. They hadn't committed to becoming disciples yet. So um, so what's going on? Is this a sermon for believers or for the spiritually curious and the seeking? Um, as we go along in chapters 5 to 7, we'll see there's a lot of moral imperatives um, in the Sermon on the Mount and a lot of talk of the kingdom, Jesus' kingdom that he's bringing. So does this mean that that these imperatives are like entrance requirements. Um, so you can see how we need to know who's he talking to and how do we apply this. Um, if it's like entrance requirements, then you know we're going to look at some of these things and say, well, I've got to be peacemaking enough um, to get into the kingdom or merciful enough or, or whatever. So I'll just kind of cut to the chase and say that the primary audience was the disciples. If you look at verse 1, he saw the crowds and he went up. Um, in a sense, 
uh, leaving them behind. And he sat down and his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them. Um, but the crowds ultimately came around and um, were listening in because we know that for sure as, this, as the Sermon on the Mount ends in Matthew 7, verses 28 and 29, it says this, When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So, so really there's a twofold application, a twofold understanding um, of how this sermon applies uh, depending on where you are as a listener. So for those who believe, for those who are his disciples, these kingdom ethics and imperatives shape the new covenant people of God who, who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. So this is the path of discipleship for disciples of Jesus. This is, this is what it looks like to follow him. It's not how you get in but it's what it looks like to follow him. Um, for those who haven't yet become disciples of Jesus, these beatitudes and the ethics and imperatives are not entrance requirements, but they function in at least two ways. First, um, I think it pretty much uh, leads a person to see how impossible it is uh, to earn your way in or obey your way in to the kingdom. Um, so the law of Christ here leads you to see your need of the grace of Christ. So he says, you've heard it said, don't murder, but I say to you, if you have anger in your heart toward your brother, I mean, who isn't guilty of that? You've heard that it said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you, if you look on a woman with lustful intent, you've committed adultery in your heart. So who's not guilty of that? So if we take Jesus's word seriously, if you're honest with yourself, you pretty quickly realize that you don't just need a teacher to show you the way. You need a savior to rescue you from your going astray. Um, so it certainly functions that way if you are listening to the sermon and uh, you're not yet a disciple. But <clears throat> especially with the Beatitudes, they also function like an invitation. So, for instance, um, we'll see this with blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But let's take another one. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So, if you hear that, and you think, you know, God's working on your heart, and you think, there, there is no more beautiful, amazing, awe-inspiring um, vision than to see God, the one who created all beauty, who is more powerful and more wonderful, more majestic, more um, glorious than anyone or anything else. And so I want to see him. I need to be pure in heart. I want to be pure in heart. Um, that is the blessed path. So God make my heart pure. You can see how it serves as an invitation. So these pronouncements, these beatitudes, Jesus is saying, this is the blessed life. Don't you want to get in on this? Don't you want to know me, the king, and be a part of my kingdom? So that leads to the third point. Um, we ask the question, what is a beatitude? 
So we're going to be looking at the Beatitudes. There's nine of them. Um, we'll be looking at them for the next few weeks. But we should stop and just say, what is a Beatitude? Um, first, we can say that the term comes from the Latin Beatus, meaning happy or blessed or fortunate. Um, but that doesn't really tell us much more than the English translation. Um, the question is, how are they supposed to function? How do they work? How, how does it hit me and how am I supposed to respond? So they're not commands. Um, how do you obey a pronouncement? How do you apply a pronouncement? Again, these are not entrance requirements. You don't have to check off all the beatitude boxes if you're going to have a chance at getting into the kingdom. So what are they? Well, first, they are really a declaration of reality in the kingdom of heaven, in this broken world um, as Jesus enters it to bring the good news of the kingdom. This, these are declarations of reality. These things are simply true. This is the blessed path. Um, and you can see right away that Jesus' kingdom is a countercultural kingdom. It flies in the face of the values of this world. Um, I ran across once um, a blog post that Ray Ortland had written entitled The Unbeatitudes. And it just so clearly uh, describes how... Um, contrary to the values of this world, Jesus's beatitudes are the values of the kingdom. So here's what he wrote. Congratulations to the entitled, for they grab what they want. Congratulations to the carefree, for they shall be comfortable. Congratulations to the pushy, for they shall win. Congratulations to the greedy, for they shall climb the food chain. Congratulations to the vengeful, for they shall be feared. Congratulations to those who don't get caught, for they shall look good. Congratulations to the argumentative, for they shall get in the last word. Congratulations to the popular, for this world lies at their feet. So that all may seem true in this world. Um, it may seem like the happy place, the place of success and the favor of the world and the, the way to get ahead, but it's really all smoke and mirrors. It's all a lie. It's not reality. That's not the blessed, fortunate life. It's not the pathway to true human flourishing. Reality is what Jesus pronounces it to be in the Beatitudes. And so as such, the Beatitudes are an invitation to participate in the truly blessed life, to enter the path of life, the path that leads to true hum human flourishing. So Jesus, what he's doing is pronouncing the blessedness or the fortunateness of those who are, first off, poor in spirit and, and so on. So if you have ears to hear, then even though these pronouncements are not commands, they are commanding. They capture your attention and they invite you to respond to the truth and grace of God. So in light of that, think back to that audience question. There's this twofold focus uh, on the disciples or the committed followers primarily, but also on the uncommitted crowds secondarily. So in the first instance, um, 
the king, Jesus, is pronouncing the nature of life lived under his reign, his kingdom, his rule, both present and future. So his disciples hear these words, and they're actually words of words to celebrate um, on, on account of God's work in their lives. If you are poor in spirit, blessed are you. God's already graced you with that. He's, he's already connected you with reality, with your need. And so blessed are you. And to those who know their need and come to Jesus to meet that need, who are trusting God, depending on God um, and his grace and mercy, yours is the kingdom. You're in. This is like a wonderful pronouncement and it's a cause uh, for celebration. But it can also function in the the ears and the heart of a disciple as a means of correction and recalibration. So um, genuine disciples who have known their poverty of spirit, the fact that they have absolutely nothing but spiritual debt to bring to the table, and Jesus paid their debt and all of that, Um, It's easy for entitlement to creep in, for self-righteousness to creep in. And so um, you can then start to feel like, you know, let's say you you suffer or you're not, um, you don't have some things that others have and you start to get jealous and envious. And so this blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven can correct you and recalibrate you like what what am I what am I doing? Like I am feeling entitled here, and I'm feeling like I got a raw deal. And no, I don't deserve anything. I'm totally a spiritual beggar, and I've got everything. The kingdom is mine. So it, it recalibrates. So that's two ways in which the um, beatitudes can function in the life of a disciple. But to those who are not disciples, I've mentioned it before. These words are an invitation. You hear this pronouncement and you say, man, I want to get in on this. So think about it this way. Let's say you hop in the car with a friend, um, taking a trip to D.C. They put their phone in the little, you know, holder and open up their safe driving app. And by the end of the trip, I I don't think our insurance company does this, but um, you see these commercials along these lines. By the end of the trip, because they've, you know, on the speed limit and and all of that, it registers savings of $23.78. And so you ask them about this app and, you know, and you're talking about it and how much did you save last year? And they say $447 and they're all excited. And so you can imagine, you know, the voiceover on the commercial, um, all of a sudden, you know, saying fortunate is the one who drives safely and has state farm or whatever for they shall save tons of money on their car insurance and so that pronouncement makes you want to get on the phone and get an insurance quote and get in on the blessing of having state farm you know for your insurance and driving safely and using this app so do you see the point To the true followers, these are statements of celebration and congratulation, um, and they can also be corrective. To the curious, to the uncommitted, but those who are listening, the seekers, they are not presented as entrance requirements. The Beatitudes are not entrance requirements, but rather they function as an invitation, like, don't you want to get in on this? Um, This is 
the blessed life. So these statements are not commands, but they are commanding. And so the question you have to ask yourself is, how do I respond to these pronouncements? Do I rejoice in the reality of these pronouncements because I know that they apply to me? Um, if not, and this is new, then it's like, are they beautiful and attractive? If so, then God may be drawing you. Just like some from that crowd were no doubt drawn into the circle of disciples precisely because they heard Jesus preaching this sermon. Um, but if not, then, you know, that's really not a good place to be. If you hear these pronouncements and you're indifferent, am I indifferent to these pronouncements? You know, if so, you know, this could be kind of like a splash of cold water on the face. I mean, just consider the flip side of these pronouncements. And they would turn into indictments and warnings if we just stick our fingers in our ears or are indifferent to them. Um, so if we don't listen and respond, then instead what we need to hear is woe to the self-sufficient, for theirs is the kingdom of Satan, or cursed are the self-righteous, for their hypocrisy will be exposed, or cursed are the self-esteeming and self-determined and self-satisfied. So um, hopefully that helps us you know, answer the question, what is beatitude and how is it supposed to function? How is it supposed to work in my mind and my heart? And how am I supposed to respond to it? Um, the fourth point here is we need to figure out what this word blessed means. Each of the beatitudes begins with that word blessed. So what does that mean? In what sense are the blessed blessed? Um, does it mean happy? Well, it can. Uh, but if we read carefully, we should be able to see that the blessedness that Jesus pronounces is not primarily or first and foremost emotional happiness. The accent instead is first on objective blessedness and then secondarily on subjective blessedness, kind of the emotional happiness. So deep, not superficial emotional happiness is certainly the intended byproduct of this blessedness. Um, Jesus wants us to flourish, um, but it's not the primary meaning here. The objective blessedness is the primary meaning. If that's unclear, um, I think an example will help. If you flip ahead to Matthew 16, Jesus was asking his disciples, you know, who do people say that I am? And, you know, they answer, you know, Elijah or one of the prophets or whatever. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And in verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, Simon bar Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So you see how it's objective blessing. It's not you're so happy right now, Peter. Um, no, it means you have been blessed objectively by God. He has favored you. You are fortunate. The fact that you know who I am is proof positive that you have been blessed. You have objectively been graced by God because the Father has revealed my identity to you. So back to chapter 5, with each beatitude, it's the latter half of the beatitude 
that gives shape and meaning to the nature of the blessing, to the pronouncement of the blessing. So, <clears throat> blessed are the poor in spirit. How is it that they're favor favored? How is it that they're fortunate? How is it that they're, they're blessed? Well, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is that objective blessing. It belongs to them. So you might feel spiritually poor and be, you know, self-pitying and licking your wounds and, you know, envious. But if you're genuinely a disciple, <laughs> the kingdom is yours. So it's objectively yours, even if subjectively, subjectively you're not feeling it at the moment. So anyway, um, so it's the objective promise that Jesus's disciples need to believe. And when that truth, that promise sinks in, it gives us joy. It makes us happy. The subjective blessedness is produced as the byproduct. Um, so you could take the second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. So again, if you're mourning over your sin and the sinfulness and the, the futility and suffering and pain and injustice that characterizes this fallen, broken world, then to know that you will one day be fully comforted is this future promise that is so sweet, so needed. And when you know that that's true, that it's yours, nothing can take that away from you. That future fulfillment, that promise, that hope actually trickles back into your present circumstance and it gives you hope and strengthens you and it comforts you in the present. So the future promise of every tear wiped and no more sorrow or suffering or death or pain trickles back and it comforts you in the present. So you can see how this beatitude functions. Um, you can also think of it the opposite way if you were to flip it on its head. So if you live a charmed life, you don't recognize your need for a savior. You, you don't recognize your sin. You're not sorry for it. Um, you're not mourning over your sin. You could insulate yourself from the brokenness of the world, the pain and suffering of others. You just want to live this ch comfortable, charmed life. Jesus would say over your life, woe to you. Your future is terrifying. So even though you might f be feeling carefree and happy in the moment, in reality, you're not blessed. You are cursed. Woe to you. So again, you can see how when we ask the question, what sense um, are the blessed blessed? It is objective, but we want to internalize that objective blessing so that it becomes subjectively real within us, um, subjectively powerful um, within us. So, so if you do mourn your sin, if you hate it, if you grieve how slow your progress is, for instance, if you mourn the effect and the impact of sin in those that you know and in this world at large, if it weighs heavy on you and you long for God's kingdom to come and you cry out, how long, O oh Lord? That can seem like burden and weight and, and curse and ugh, but actually you're blessed. You are clued into reality. Of course, things are not as they ought to be. We should not be comfortable with things as they are. But blessed are those who mourn, 
objectively. This is true because they are the ones who shall be comforted. So we're not promised full comfort now necessarily, though we can experience much of it in this life. But the fact that one day God will wipe away every tear, um, that is true blessedness. That is the um, favored, fortunate, uh, true life life. Okay? So now if we stop and think about it, these beatitudes challenge our values they kind of force us to look in and say what what do i really view as the blessed life the fortunate life Um, and not just the answer that you know you should give but the actual functional answer what does the life look like that's truly fortunate so if you think of someone who's really been dealt a good hand what marks their life or think of your life and experience and the times when you've identified people who, you know, live a charmed or a blessed or a fortunate life. What does their life look like? Does it look like this, like the Beatitudes, or does it look nearly the opposite? We have to be careful that our values are not in line with the world, but instead that our values are increasingly aligned with the kingdom of heaven. I mean, what kind of people you look at and say, wow, that's the life. So as you take time to think about that, we should ask ourselves, be honest with ourselves, how much of my values, how many of my values are in line with kingdom values? So you can see why we shouldn't be surprised that Jesus starts out and says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. (laughs) We are going to need to change. The king is on the scene and he's come to teach us the values of his kingdom, to bring his kingdom. And he's going to exhort us in chapter 6 to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And so we should expect that we're going to need to change, to repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand and it is the most important kingdom um, to ever exist. And it's the only kingdom that's going to exist forever. So we're going to need to change and be changed We need the Sermon on the Mount to shape us. So with all that introductory material out of the way, let's look at the first beatitude and then we'll be done here. So um, point number five, the wealth of the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is saying, fortunate, favored, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, are you poor in spirit? Am I? Do we know our need? I mean, this is actually (laughs) uh, kind of a wonderful characteristic of the kingdom, of citizens of the kingdom. I mean, think about how low this bar is. Jesus is saying, you want to be in my kingdom? You just need to know that you have nothing, (laughs) nothing to offer. You're a total spiritual beggar. You, you just have to know that your hands are empty. I mean, that's actually really good news. We don't have to be uber competent. We don't have to, you know, be impressive. We just need to recognize our need. So that's really all we bring to the table. In fact, it's not even that our hands are empty. It's worse than that. Our hands are full of debt. That's what we bring to the table. Tons of spiritual debt. 
Um, I mean, if if we ever have a thought or anything that even smacks of, you know, boy, God would be really lucky to have me on his team. We are totally out of touch with reality. No. This is reality. Blessed are the poor in spirit because they are tuned into reality and theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So all we bring is debt. I mean, in the Lord's Prayer, what do we pray? Forgive us our debts. God has given us everything that we have. Nothing is ultimately ours. And every single one of us has used what God has given us for our own selfish purposes, for our glory, for our namesake, for our selfish purposes. We have not loved him with all of our heart. We have so often tried to just use God like a tool instead of treasuring him like the infinitely valuable treasure that he is. We haven't loved our neighbors as ourselves. So later on in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus compares our debt, the debt of our sin, to, you know, there's this uh, parable of the unmerciful servant, and there's this master whose servant owes him a debt of 10,000 talents, which is just like this astronomical figure. You could never pay it off. So the debt was absolutely beyond his ability to pay, and he begs for mercy, and that master completely forgives his debt. So that's us. We deserve eternal debtor's prison in hell. God could call in our debt. We would have no appeal, no excuse, nothing to pay, pay it off. Um, So do you know that need? Do you feel that need? Do you acknowledge it? Do you recognize how desperate we are before God? Um, Or more often than not, do you focus on or are you inclined to focus on the fact that you're not as bad as so-and-so? Well, at least I don't, or I'm not that bad, or you try to counterbalance the bad things you do, the ways that you don't measure up to your own standards, let alone God's by, you know, rehashing the good things. Well, I do a lot of good things too. We can kind of see how insane that thinking is with a little illustration here. So if you're in good shape, like cardio-wise, but you have cancer, running more, going out for more runs, isn't going to heal you of your cancer. So if you're sin sick, if you've got this massive debt of sin, doing some good things isn't going to make up for it. And we need to realize that our debt is not just from bad things that we've done, but also from good things that we've done and been proud of them or they've been done from like a self-righteous motivation, or we, you know, after doing them, we look down on others from our moral high ground perch. So more good things is not going to take care of all the bad things. Um, Another thing that I think we ought to consider, uh, you know, maybe you don't, maybe you know the gospel well enough and you you would never think well at least i don't and you're not trying to you know balance out your bad things with the good things but this might strike a little closer to home tim keller speaks of being middle class in spirit so you know as far as your creed is concerned you may know that you're a sinner saved by grace and there's nothing you can do to get in and whatever but as you go along in the christian life you're operating more like a taxpayer than a poor in spirit believer. So we can 
subtly, slowly, subtly start to feel like, you know, we've worked hard and we've sacrificed a lot and we've given a lot, you know, of time and money and whatever. And we deserve God to give us a pretty good life. It's like this taxpayer mentality, being middle class in spirit. So I've done this and that and I deserve, like, you know, come on, God. Sometimes suffering kicks up this middle class spirit where the suffering comes and we just think, what did I do to deserve this? The subtext under that is, I've done all these good things. Why don't you treat me better, God? Why, why would you give me this suffering? Or sometimes we can almost use this, um, our track record or our sacrifices or our faithfulness or whatever as like a bargaining chip. Like, um, I've done this or I will do thus and such. You know, just throw me a bone in this situation, please. So you can see how that's like, oh, that's a middle class spirit instead of a, I deserve absolutely nothing. Um, everything else is a bonus. I'm not going to hell anymore. Instead, I've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved son. And um, nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ. And I, like, I, I can't even believe this is all mine. And so when suffering strikes, you know, it hurts. It's sad. You're, you're needing to cling to the Lord for grace to deal with it all. But you don't get upset and shake your fist at God and say, you know, what did I do to deserve this? Um, I deserve better. I deserve better treatment. Or if someone else, you know, that you think is, is not as good a Christian as you are or whatever, and they, their circumstances are better than yours, you don't get jealous and critical and whatever. Um, we all have the race set before us. We need to trust the Lord with that. Sometimes we would wish our, our race would be different. But, you know, if we really are poor in spirit, we recognize that we deserve nothing. Um, we're not going to get angry with God and jealous of others. We're going to be set free from that because we know that we are blessed. The kingdom is ours. Um, so, anyway, the question then is, do you try to come to God like that? Sometimes almost like we have money in our hand, like a taxpayer trying to manipulate God to get what we want or for him to do what we want. Hey, I, I've, I've paid my dues. I deserve, that's, that's middle class in spirit. Or do you come with a bill of rights in your hand where it's like, well, this much is okay, God, but not that. You see, it's, it's this middle class or even upper class in spirit sort of thing where we are subtly trying to be the king in the kingdom rather than yielding to the true king. Like we really are empty handed. We don't have any rights or we don't deserve to tell God. We don't have the right to tell God this much and not that. Um, we have absolutely nothing and, and everything that we do have is from him and he has not dealt with us according to what our debt and sin deserves. He's been incredibly gracious. And so um, we can be thrilled that we are in the kingdom, whether we're suffering or not, because um, he is ours forever and we will be with him forever in his kingdom, uh, richly blessed.
So the king comes on the scene. He pronounces the truth, the reality. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, there is just nowhere else to go with our debt than to this merciful, gracious king. Um, Jesus, thankfully, didn't just come to preach the gospel of the kingdom. He came to die to pay our debt so that we could enter his kingdom. He took all of our pride, all of our middle class and spirit or upper class and spirit, all of our I'll do it my own way, thank you, all of our facade self-sufficiency, all of our I'm strong enough, I'm good enough, I don't need you, all of our wretched self-righteousness. He died for it all, all that debt, the debt of our sin. When he hung on the cross, he said, it is finished, paid in full, the full debt of sin for everyone who would ever put their trust in him as their savior. So you can only enter Jesus's kingdom with empty hands after you hand him your full debt, knowing that he alone can pay it on the cross. When we recognize our need, give our debt to Jesus, Jesus gives us the riches of his mercy that he won on the cross, and blessed are we. Ours is the kingdom of heaven. You are a beloved and honored citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You are one of the fortunate ones by grace who benefit from King Jesus' mighty and benevolent rule. He is for us and not against us. And so if, if you are poor in spirit, you're already in the kingdom by his grace. And then when he returns, you will be vindicated and exalted and you will have it all. So it's really the self-sufficient, the self-righteous who deprive themselves of true riches and strength, true blessing. They can gain the whole world but they can't take it with them. They will die and forfeit their soul. So do you feel your need? Do you know your need? Woe to the self-confident and self-sufficient and self-promoting. Where those things are present in our hearts, we need to repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Only the poor in spirit are the blessed, fortunate, favored ones. They're the only ones who are truly rich. Um, I think this, this really convicted me as I was uh, preparing last week um, to realize that poverty of spirit plays out not only vertically, but also horizontally. So do we really feel unworthy to be a part of God's kingdom, a part of his church? I think more often than we'd care to admit, we can start to feel like certain people in the church, maybe even in your community group, are below you. We don't want to bother with them. We don't want to associate with them. We don't have to deal with them. Maybe someone annoys you. Maybe they've said something unkind to you or they've been prickly or, or you know, they're just simple or whatever you, whatever you think. And perhaps you look down on them with contempt. Realize what's happening there. You're looking down on them from, a, from your perch. That They're not worthy of your time. That's not poverty of spirit. And so Jesus comes to us when we are viewing ourselves that way, when we're viewing others that way with this superiority complex. And he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I mean, if we are honestly praying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It has horizontal implications. 
we need to repent if the kingdom is going to come in our lives, in our church, among us. And I think we really should, after we repent, realize what is ours. <laughs> if, if we're recalibrated, we're reminded of the fact that we are total spiritual beggars, start to finish, we start to think, what am I doing in this kingdom? What right do I have to be here? I'm not no better than anybody else. All I had was debt. I know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, like 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Only by the riches of his mercy, sheer mercy and grace, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch, a poor in spirit, spiritual beggar wretch like me. So it is a privilege. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Incredible grace and kindness. We are so unworthy. We did nothing to deserve this, and we have it all. That is the spirit that we need to walk through life with. That is the blessed, clued into reality, um, flourishing sort of life. And it's to those folks Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the king comes and he has pronouncements to make. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is good news. So let's repent, whether for the first time or the 5,000th time, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus wants to change us because he wants to bless us. And through us, he wants to bless this broken world.